G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This week, we have a special edition of Stick Together celebrating International Working Women's Day, held each year on March the 8th. We talk about and two women working within unions as agents for change. First up, we will honour the passing of equal pay activist Zelda Deprano. Dr Claire Wright, historian, author and broadcaster, takes us back to 1969 when Zelda Deprano chained herself to the Commonwealth Buildings in Melbourne to protest the failure of the first Australian equal pay case for women. Later, Alana Dave, International Transport Federation's Public Transport Program Leader, has been visiting Australia. We get an insight into her work and her journey from grassroots activism in South Africa to her role in the International Transport Federation. There was an equal pay case in the meat industry where I was working was heavily involved and they asked us, the staff, they had all these leaflets printed, thousands of them, to go out into the city in your own time, lunchtime or after work, and hand these leaflets to people all about the case. But handing out leaflets at that time in the city was, was a legal offence. So I was standing there handing out the leaflets and keeping my eye out for any cops. <laughs> and then the day of the case hearing, I was asked to accompany a group of about 20-odd women who worked at the meatworks to hear the case presentation. And Bob Hawke was the advocate at, the, at that time, and he presented the case forward. But what affected me very deeply was that there was the, the men pro getting equal pay, and there were the opposition, and they were all men. And here we are, all these women sitting in, not a word said from us, and here are all these men arguing about our worth. And I felt so demeaned, as if we were a lot of cows at the cow yards. That's the voice of Zelda Deprano recalling the historic first equal pay case that failed in 1969. Zelda died peacefully in her bed on February the 21st, aged 90 years of age. The failure of the equal pay case led Deprano to chain herself to the Commonwealth Buildings in Melbourne in protest. Why the Commonwealth Building? Because the government should lead by example, said Zelda Deprano. I spoke to Dr Claire Wright, historian and author of The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, about this inspirational warrior woman. Talking about Zelda Deprano, and one of the things that I noticed looking at her history is that uh, she applied intelligence to direct action in a way that probably reminds everybody of Rosa Parks. Can you tell us a bit about why 
Zelda Deprano is such an inspiration? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head with intelligence. And Zelda was nothing is nothing if not one of the smartest women that I've ever met. Uh, you know, she was she left school at fourteen, although she had been selected to to participate in a group of of gifted students at secondary school. So she had opportunities that other women of her class didn't necessarily because of her intelligence. But she did leave school and she went into to factory jobs. And it was what she did next, really, that, that mattered. It was the fact that she saw inequality and particularly gendered inequality all around her. And she was not happy to let that be. Uh, she was she was courageous and she was a, a fighter. She was a real warrior woman. And, and I think that possibly like Rosa Parks, she really embodied that maxim of, be the change you want to see and I think that is probably what characterised her until the last days of her her long life. A lot of people take for granted a range of things about uh, uh, female um, emancipation that when she was a young woman nothing could be taken for granted. Yeah, that's right. It, it couldn't be taken for granted that you that that anything would be given to you in life. Um, you, you were effectively entitled to nothing, and you you weren't entitled to an education, and you weren't entitled to a job that would effectively or in any way sufficiently remunerate you for for the work that you had, had done. You you couldn't take for granted that you would be safe in in your own home, and you couldn't be you couldn't take for granted that. You know, despite such uh, feminist gains in the past, like citizenship and the right to vote, you couldn't be—you couldn't take for granted that you were, that your voice would carry any authority or be taken seriously in any, in any context. And I think it is those multiple levels of discrimination that that Zelda fought against. My mind is going to Vida Goldstein, who was uh, like Zelda. A warrior woman of um, of a different generation, and and I know that that Zelda did look to those earlier suffragists and women like Father Goldstein, who similarly was a Victorian, who who fought her whole life uh, against discrimination and inequality for women, and trying to get women and girls, particularly working women and girls, a better life. And I know that Zelda looked to those early that earlier generation for for inspiration. Um, it was very interesting to me in in interviewing Zelda about her probably her most famous action, action the chain up when she chained herself to the beginning of the, to the front of the Commonwealth buildings. In asking her about that, she very much had in mind that earlier generation of suffragists um, and women like Muriel Matters who chained herself to the grill in in Westminster um, as part of the campaign to by Australian women to help British women get the vote. So that sense of sisterhood, that sense of of solidarity and that sense of being part of a long tradition very much animated Zelda. It just reminds me of someone telling me that when he was 21, after the Second World War, his mother wasn't, even though she was the breadwinner, was not allowed to take out a, a housing loan because she wasn't considered to be a good risk. But he, as a 21-year-old, her son, could sign the papers. That's right. And, you know, there are so many small, uh, seemingly small legal uh, points of legal discrimination that, that actually had profound influences on, on women's life. Uh, the fact that they couldn't get bank loans, um, you know, particularly married women. And, and there were women who did not get married. 
um, for that reason. Uh, I know just in, in my street here in, in the northern suburbs of Melbourne, there, there's a woman who is of, of Zelda's generation who lives across the road. She worked at the State Library of Victoria and she actively turned down marriage proposals and chose not to get married because at that stage women were still um, were fired from the public service if they got married. And she loved her job, and that was the ch- that was the kind of choice that she had to make—a life that was it involved marriage and children, or a, a, a working professional life—and that's what she ended up choosing. And uh, I think that it's almost impossible for young women today to imagine having to make those kinds of choices um, about their life and, and and their life expectations and outcomes. But those are the sorts of um, seemingly small but actually incredibly influential uh, points of discrimination that, that Zelda fought against. Now let's go to Zelda in particular and her chaining herself to the fence outside the uh, Arbitration Commission. It was about something that she had actually uh, set the ball rolling, fair pay. Yeah, so one of the things that Zelda fought for was equal pay for equal work. It was the principle that underlined, in a sense, her entire relationship to the industries that she was in. So Zelda went into factory jobs and, and um, at the time, 1969, of, of her famous chain-up, she was working in the um, meat workers industry and that industry was used as a test case for an equal pay claim. And she went along and she went to all of the hearings of it and, and one of the things that she couldn't believe was that in the, in the hear- hearings, in the Arbitration Commission, it was all men who were putting the case of the women. Not one single woman got got the opportunity to speak for themselves and add their voices to the claim that was being made in their name. Um, and indeed, in, in the end, the claim was rejected and, uh, and Zelda didn't accept it. And she felt that this was something that had to be protested against. And she didn't mind if it had to be a one-woman protest. So she organised quite deliberately. She, she bought herself um, the chain um, for the, the lock-up. She actually uh, told me she got it from somebody in the Siemens Union. So she had support from within the industrial landscape. She had mates, men who were prepared to to help her. And she got the chain and she went marched down there to the Commonwealth buildings and she chained herself to the front door and she held that famous um, sign. And she, she stood there. She didn't just stand there in a vacuum. She actually had rung the press beforehand and she told them that she was going to be there. So she very cleverly manipulated both the medium of photography because she knew that the press would take photographs before the advent of, of social media, she made herself the, the news of the day. And there she stands in, in her very prim, um, very... She actually told me she made her own clothes that she wore that day, but you know, she doesn't look like a rabble-rouser. Uh, she doesn't look like your image of a 1960s feminist. And that's because she was at the very forefront of the movement and, and somebody said to her on that day, what what possible benefit, what what possible outcome could one woman's protest make? And she said to them, well, you can unchain me from this door and I'll go away and tomorrow there will be three of us and the next day there will be ten of us. And she really believed that it it would start a chain reaction and she was right. She and uh, a couple of other women went and started the uh, Women's Liberation Centre in Melbourne at the same time that Anne Summers uh, and other younger women were setting up similar liberation 
fronts in, in Adelaide and around the country. So she became a kind of elder statesman of this, what we now consider to be second wave feminism, um, this, this wall of women who just kept marching forward. Zelda became an inspiration for them, uh, just as the, the suffragettes had been to an earlier generation of activists. Uh, it's actually not just intelligence, it's bravery too, isn't it? Uh, and I think Zelda showed throughout all of the actions that she took in, in her life uh, was courage. And and you, you you really can't underestimate that that kind of bravery to be able to stand there on your own on you know that day that she staged her chain up she told me she was terrified she didn't know what was going to happen next and uh, she was she was absolutely terrified but it didn't dissuade her because she knew that the only way to make a difference was to be the person who initiated change, who started something. And and you couldn't say where it was going to go, but at least you had to start it. And I think that takes tremendous courage. And, and it took tremendous courage to write the sort of things that she did in her autobiography as well, which I'd really encourage people to read. Because what's extraordinary about it is that, that it's, it's the story of a woman who absolutely believed despite the fact you'd think she was part of an older generation who would be very modest about certain aspects of her life. She absolutely believed that the personal was political. So she talks about uh, her relationships in, in what we now would consider to be quite sort of modern detail. She talks about her sexual life. She talks about her abortion. She, she talks about her, her, the, the, her marriage and, um, and why it failed eventually. And... You know, we we sort of in our Oprah age and and our, we're not sort of frightened about exposing any parts of our personal lives now, but but Zelda really was of, a, of another generation, and and she in a sense led that charge to say, well, the only way we're going to be able to expose the reality of women's lives and therefore how they're going to change is to expose them down to the bone, and if that makes people uncomfortable. Well, so be it. They're going to have to listen to it. And, you know, right in the last stages of Zelda's life, just last October, Zelda was awarded an honorary doctorate of letters from La Trobe University. She was awarded that as a, a distinguished Australian who had provided a lifetime of significant service to, to the nation's workplaces and the women's movement and to Australian culture more generally. And And Zelda, unfortunately wasn't well enough to travel to La Trobe for the graduation ceremony, so the university went to her and uh, and awarded it, the, the doctor to her at her um, aged care facility, and I was um, privileged to be there that day. And Zelda made a, a, a beautiful speech afterwards in accepting the citation where she again mentioned her abortion. And I think that she may be the only person in living history to talk about their abortion in a graduation ceremony. I'd like to see somebody else who did that. And, you know, and Zelda was knocking on 90 years old at that stage. And I think that it's, it's that kind of courage to, as I said, be the change you want to see that really distinguishes Zelda and her life and makes her a role model for all of us. I think Zelda never took for granted um, that she would that she would be a legend. Like it's not why she did it. Um, she didn't she didn't put herself forward as uh, as being the icon that she became. But she was always very happy 
to uh, to nurture that younger generation right up until the very end. She mentored so many women um, uh, up until her last days. You know, she she wasn't just a legend; she was a living legend, and and I I, I know that that is actually going to live on. You're listening to Stick Together, and we are celebrating International Working Women's Day with stories from working women. Alana Dave is the International Transport Federation's Public Transport Program leader. She recently came to Australia to visit some of the ITF affiliates. Alana took some time out to talk to Stick Together. But I'm actually from uh, South Africa. And I was a student in South Africa in the 1980s at the height of all the anti-apartheid struggles. And a very key part of those struggles was the relationship between trade unions and students. So that's what brought me into kind of labor politics. Uh, I was a student activist, but all the time we were supporting worker strikes and um, consumer boycotts and other actions initiated by workers. And then after university, I went into kind of labor education. So for many years, I was involved in trade union education and then got a job as the trade union education officer of the ITF in London. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because that type of work that you were doing as a young person, uh, I mean, it sounds uh, nice and tied up, but it's actually, you must have been terribly brave and it must have been quite frightening. Um, Well, it was. It was a time of um, very, you know, severe repression in South Africa, but there was a kind of collective courage because we had a very strong sense of purpose in what we were doing. And that gave people that um, courage. There was a lot of solidarity. There was a lot of support. There was a strong vision and that kept us going. And that things could change. And we had a real, yeah, we had a real sense that we were kind of making history and changing the course of history. And that really kept people going, kept people motivated, even during the darkest days of, of repression in South Africa. I must say that it's a, a important element of what's going on in the industrial landscape across the world at the moment. Actually, Yeah, and every day we see really brave trade unionists and workers showing a lot of courage because, you know, even though there's been political change in a country like South Africa, there are many countries around the world where, um, you know, being a trade unionist is, is threatening. Now, the International uh, Transport Federation is immense. I was uh, looking at its uh, scope. It is absolutely immense. It's huge, and we're so proud of the organisation that we've got. You know, at the moment, the unions affiliated to the ITF represent almost 20 million transport workers around the world and in all sectors of transport. So we in maritime, in road, in rail, in urban transport, in aviation, in tourism, in fisheries. So it covers all parts of the kind of transport sector. And... um, Right now, we have 670 unions affiliated to the ITF from every region of of the world. So we do feel like a truly representative organisation. Now, you're you're, uh, part of uh, two very important um, 
prongs of education, combating violence and insecurity on urban public transport and strengthening climate leadership. When I read that, I was thinking that's very fascinating because generally speaking, people think that those two things are being handled or not handled by government or by personal action. Uh, They leave out uh, an organisation as important as the ITF in that kind of uh, equation. They absolutely do. They leave out many organisations that are really important to those um, to those struggles. So my particular role is to coordinate a global program on public transport and both of those elements, violence on urban public transport but also climate change, are absolutely kind of essential because the only real alternative to the private car, which is responsible for, you know, rising emissions in cities, um, is public um, transport. Um, But unless we get a different model of public transport that respects workers' rights, that serves the needs of the communities, um, you know, it's not enough just to focus on the environmental. The environmental and the social and labour issues are very closely connected. And it's only trade unions and other types of political organisations that can win that social model of public transport. What we're doing is linking um, industrial issues with the wider political issues around public transport. So we're addressing some of the bread and butter issues that are important to trade unions um, organising in public transport workplaces. But at the same time, we're positioning unions to influence politically the kind of um, public transport system um, that we want. Because actually in many cities around the world, we are seeing more investment in public transport and new public transport systems being introduced. A lot of those systems are under private ownership. Um, Profits are not being reinvested into the public transport system. And often trade unions and workers' rights are not being um, recognised. So that's not the kind of public transport that we want. Um, So we address the bread and butter trade union issues, but also try and influence um, the policies around public transport. And we're developing a people's public transport policy as a campaigning platform for unions and other organisations so that we build a a people's public transport movement. Um, Well, that's interesting because, of course, the RBT, uh, you launched their initiative last year. And is that one of the reasons why you've been asked to come here? Um, it is. The RTBU's campaign, Public Transport, Public Hands, was so important and reflected really closely what we're trying to do um, with other unions in other countries. Um, so that effort to re-nationalise the public transport system in Melbourne was really, really important. And I think what was so inspiring about that campaign was the way in which the union reached out to the community. That's right, yes. So um, we're very interested in that kind of approach to to campaigning. Any campaign is... Uh it doesn't come from the top. It, it, it's all about people investing and contributing their good ideas. Absolutely. So um, in the way that we campaign should also reflect what we want to be happening in our communities and in public transport, which is democratic involvement by communities and workers in making decisions about what they need from the public transport system. So to campaign in a way with communities, to hear about what's important to them, to link the issues and demands of workers and passengers is the way we think we can build the power to change um, public transport. Now, if we go to combating violence and insecurity on urban um, public transport in Melbourne and in a variety of different uh, places in the Western world, the connection to electronic uh, ticketing 
and the removal of staff has also uh, de- uh, created a vacuum in terms of uh, personnel and perhaps uh, allowed the introduction of a more draconian method of cr- uh, dealing with security, the PSOs, as opposed to, say, conductors or mm-hmm. a completely different sort of paradigm. Uh, does the ITF have other notions about how to deal with uh, insecurity on uh, public transport? Yeah, and, and well, the issue that you mentioned, um, removing staff from trains and from ticket offices is a common experience in other countries as well. So I know that's a big issue here in Melbourne, but you see very similar set of issues um, in, in other cities. And ITF supports our unions to campaign for those um, jobs and to link those jobs to the importance of, of safety. And we find that many Passengers actually agree with that. The other issue that I want to talk about in relation to violence is a particular issue that women transport workers or women public transport workers face because we feel that or we've come across that as being a huge issue in most cities around the world, that neither women passengers nor women transport workers feel that public transport offers a safe working environment. So we've also got ideas about how that um, can be addressed. Affiliates in different countries, they would be trying to influence um, decision makers, whether it's at a national government level or at a city level. For us at an international level, we've got a relationship with the international umbrella body of public transport employers called the UITP. And we've actually signed an agreement with them on um, preventing violence on public transport workplaces, um, about how unions and employers jointly can address that particular issue, the importance of negotiating around that issue. So that international agreement can also be used at a local level to to strengthen um, how, how employers are responding to violence in urban public transport. And because I'm talking to you uh, around International Working Women's Day, you, in a sense, are a bit of a role model, aren't you? You're in a very important role nationally. Do you have any words for people who aspire to... Uh, work at the same level? I do. And, you know, a lot of my strength as an individual woman comes from the fact that we've got a really strong, dynamic women's department, which has taken a long time to build because we work in such a male-dominated industry, which is the um, transport sector. And I suppose the first thing I want to share is just that women need to really support each other in these um, organisations and feel confident and take the opportunities that they are to build our um, leadership. And women workers absolutely need that and deserve that because so many of their issues for so long remained um, sort of unaddressed or not seen as um, as, real as priorities, <laughs> yeah. not seen as um, kind of real issues. And we know in the public transport sector that there are massive gender differences at all levels. So unless we address those differences and those issues, it means that what we're campaigning for, um, you know, will not meet the needs of women workers. So I think that women's leadership is really, really important to make sure that happens. That's it for Stick Together. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and we broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Stick Together is produced with the financial support of the Community Broadcasting Federation. Happy International Working Women's Day. We'll go out with Bread and Roses in honour of a history of fighting women. Put your hat on, honey.
can ask Mimi to come and sing Bread and Roses with me. That a sudden sun discloses For the people hear us singing Bread and roses, bread and roses As we go marching, marching We battle to for men For they are women's children And we mother them again Our From birth until life closes Hearts starve as well as bodies Give us bread, but give us roses As we go marching, marching Unnumbered women dead Go crying through our singing Their ancient call for bread Small art and love and beauty, their drudging spirits new. Yes, it is red we fight for, but we fight for roses too. As we go marching, marching, we bring the greater days. The rising of the women means the One reposes, but a sharing of life's glories, bread. 